Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. And I'm a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes, and Jules Martinez-Olivieri. And we're so grateful for all of you who tune in regularly and share the word about the podcast. I also wanted to mention we've got another podcast called the Biblical World Podcast, and that's for those of you who are interested in the physical settings of the Bible, archaeology, geography, culture, historical backgrounds, all that good stuff. And I love listening to it, and I'm not a co-host there, but I, I certainly enjoy uh, learning. And so that, that's why we started the podcast, is there was nothing quite like it out there. So do check that out if that interests you. And we also have a, a short-run series that we did a little while ago called In Parallel, and that's a separate podcast feed uh, hosted by Brent Strawn, and that's about the intersection of biblical poetry and contemporary poetry. Uh, another area of interest of mine, but Brent is way better at it. So um, in this episode, we have Jerry Richard Middleton talking about his book, Abraham's Silence, and he's been a guest on podcast before back in the early days, so it's nice to be back with him. And we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome, everyone. Our guest today is Dr. J. Richard Middleton, Professor of Biblical Worldview and Exegesis at Roberts Wesleyan. He's the author of The Liberating Image, A New Heaven and a New Earth, and Abraham's Silence, The Binding of Isaac, The Suffering of Job, and How to Talk Back to God, published by Baker uh, in 2021, which we're here to discuss. So, Richard, welcome back to OnScript. It's a pleasure to be with you, Matt. Yeah, it's been quite a while. Last time we had an interview. We were in a coffee shop at SBL, as you reminded me. Um, and then before that, we uh, had a coffee shop interview in Cheltenham. So I feel like we should be in a coffee shop, but here we are over, over um, the internet. So anyway, it's, it's good thing we both have our coffee. Yeah, exactly. Let's get right to it. And I'd love to hear what drew you to this topic of Abraham's silence when God asked him to sacrifice his son. So that requires me going back a little bit to what draws me to vigorous prayer, the prayer of lament or protest or complaint. And it goes back to my first attempt at a PhD, which crashed and burned. (laughs) And I lost my way, kind of. I had moved from Canada to the U.S. I didn't have many friends or church background. And within a year and a half, it was pretty clear that this PhD wasn't going to work out. And I had to figure out what I was going to do next. And I didn't know really where I was going to go, and I felt isolated. And I actually ended up, looking back, stopped praying. Because why would you pray to the God who you feel doesn't really care about you and is no longer guiding you? You have nothing to say to that God. And it was through studying the Psalms of Lament and coming to read these Psalms and pray these Psalms that it reinvigorated my prayer life, that I could bring my context, no matter how bad it felt to me, to God and make that part of the God relationship. So instead of shutting me off from God, it opened me back up to God. So as I began reading and studying the Lament Psalms and protest prayers in the Bible and Job, when I came to Abraham in Genesis 22, Abraham's silence stuck out to me like a sore thumb. Like if I was Abraham, I would have said something to God and complained about this. You couldn't, this is 
unjust God. You can't ask me to do this. So that's been sitting with me for years, bubbling to the surface as I've taught on lament, written on it. And I finally figured I've got to write on it. That's where the book comes from. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. We'll we'll get into those details in a little bit here. Um, your subtitle includes three elements that I, I think would be good to talk about in this interview, the binding of Isaac, the suffering of Job, and talking back to God. So um, let's take those in reverse order. You've started with laments uh, already, um, but let's hear a bit more about how the Bible models talking back to God. That I think for a lot of people, um, that's a, a pretty audacious and, and perhaps impious suggestion. Right. So I do not want to be impious or audacious without biblical warrant. So when you read the Psalms, the book of Psalms, 150 Psalms in the version that we have from the Hebrew Bible, about 50 to 60 of them are either entirely or mostly laments that they bring their prayers to God and they question God and ask, why is this happening to me? And they ask for help. In a sense, then, lament prayer is just what I call supplication with an edge. Supplication is you're asking God for something. Now, why isn't it audacious to tell God what he should do for you? That's what prayers of petition or supplication are. Doesn't God already know what you need? Well, God wants us to knock and ask and seek, and the door will be open to us, right? And the Father wants to give us good things, but we have to grapple with God and ask. So, so many Psalms model this. Maybe a few of them go in a really abrasive direction, you know. Why have you abandoned me, God? Well, does God ever actually abandon anybody? Well, it feels that way. And these prayers model that one can be honest about what you're going through as an alternative to cutting off the relationship with God. And beyond the Psalter, the book of Job is the primary place where you find someone protesting to God about his suffering, who is justified at the end of the book when God says, to Job's friends that you've not spoken of me. Literally, you've not spoken to me as righteously as my servant Job has. So that then pushed me to study more prayers of protest and lament within the Bible. And I have a chapter, of course, on Moses and the prophets. And so there's a whole lot of justification in the Old Testament for this kind of talking back to God. But I actually claim, I didn't do too much on it in the book, but I touch on it, that there is a lot in the New Testament also. And Jesus, in all of his teachings on prayer, primarily teaches about petitionary or supplication prayer. That is, asking God for what you need. And the two parables on prayer that Jesus uses, the parable of the the widow who is seeking from the unjust judge to get her due, the importunate widow, you know, she is audacious to this judge. I need this, and I won't stop badgering you till you give me what I need. And the friend at midnight who wants to give food to his friend who's visiting knocks on the neighbor's door till it wakes up the neighbor and says, I need food for my friend. That's intercessory prayer. So, And, and even the, the Lord's prayer is constituted purely by petitions, by asking God for things, even asking God that his name be sanctified, that his kingdom come, but also that I get my daily bread, me and my brothers and sisters, you know, that you keep us out of the time of testing or temptation. It's all asking God for something. So the Bible already models this kind of vigorous prayer, and that's my grounding for that aspect of the book. Yeah, yeah. I, I've um, often talked with students, too, about Romans 8, where where it talks about creation groaning, and it uses terminology there drawn from the Septuagint of Psalms of lament. So the creation groans, we groan, and the spirit groans. Even yes, even yes. Uh, the spirit is involved in lament, which is pretty remarkable. 
Someone, a, um, a biblical scholar actually recently wrote something on uh, Facebook, and I, I don't want to be unfair to them because they're not, the, this person's not here to defend uh, himself, but um, it, it just caught my eye because I knew I'd be talking to you, and I, I'd be curious to hear your, your interaction with this perspective. So he said, so it appears that being angry at God, very publicly angry with God, is back in fashion. And then he said, I've walked with the Lord for, uh, you know, a good amount of time. And, and he, he talks about how uh, for part of the time, I was really sold on the idea of being angry with God and being honest about it. That is giving a negative witness to God's faithfulness. But then went on to talk about how those years uh, immersed in that spiritual anti-culture were wasted. So, and, and then goes on to contrast that. Uh, with an idea of surrender or trust to God. So I'd just be curious to hear how you might interact with someone who thinks, oh, you know, this it's a fad to get angry with God. And um, really where the Bible ultimately wants to take us is to a position of surrender or trust, and that that's maybe a more mature place in lament, maybe just a step on the way toward that. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, so lament is a step on the way to trust. Um, and, and the quote that you were quoting it goes on to say, right, that in every single case in biblical lament, the lament that comes to a point of surrendering is pain and trusting God with it. That's actually false. There are a number of lament psalms where the lamenter does not come to that. And I want to affirm that this is not about being angry with God. That may be the case. It's about being honest with God. So to, to develop intimacy with God, one has to be honest. With develop intimacy with a spouse, with a friend, with, with a child, with a parent, you have to be honest. If, if you suppress what is your honest reaction to things, it doesn't mean you have to be angry and shout at them, but you suppress your honest reaction, you actually drift apart. And so for me, lament is a way of keeping the bond together by saying, Lord, this is the problem I'm in. This is a situation I need help. Sometimes it may seem as if God is a problem. You know, um, Klaus Westermann talked about the three types of accusations or complaints in the Lament Psalms, right? It can be, I can be the problem. And Psalm 51 is a prime example. I'm a sinner. And that shows up in a number of Lament Psalms as a minor point. Often it's the enemies have surrounded me and I'm slandering me or attacking me. So it's a them lament or they lament. Sometimes it's so a you lament or a thou lament. God, you seem to be the cause of that. Um, I'm going to be giving a paper at SBL this year on Psalm 77, where the psalmist cries out to God because, you know, has your mercy dried up? Has your chesed, your love, come to an end? What's happened to your promises, Lord? So in other words, you are trusting in God's promises, but when it doesn't seem to be instantiated in the reality you live in, you question God about that and you ask for God to bring the promises true. So it's a matter of holding to God against the current situation. So it's not just about being angry to God at all. I think it's actually, you, you need, so I'm not saying that you must lament or protest. I'm saying if you need to, the path is open for that rather than turning out your back on God and walking away. I mean, couldn't you argue though that you must lament because, like if you take the Psalms as the sort of prayer book or song song book for God's people, which I think the church has sort of affirmed through the ages, more or less. We there are lament psalms that are meant for the whole community, and and it doesn't say like if you need this, but it it's given to us. 
And in fact, even individual laments became part of the songbook of the temple. So, you know, they became communal in a certain sense. And I, I mentioned in, in Abram's silence, uh, in a, maybe it's in a footnote, that I went through a, a time of community with other Christian scholars where we did um, we did prayer, a ritualized prayer with a prayer book. And it was a lament psalm each day as part of that. And it wasn't my particular prayer. I didn't need that prayer at that time. But the constant praying of a lament psalm each day led me by the end of the week to have a profound sense of God's mercy and care. Because it, even though I wasn't consciously thinking about that, looking back now, I realize that these prayers assume that God wants to hear you in your honesty. And so even if it's not your need at this moment, it, it pr provides a kind of a spirituality that says, I know that God isn't shutting himself off from our situation of pain. God cares about our pain, which, of course, we, we affirm ultimately in Christ, in the atonement, but it's there long before that. So you the think the, sub, the subtext of Lament Psalms is an affirmation of trust that kind of undergirds them? I think it's, yes. So you pointed out about, um, you know, the the... The, the lament and trust. Let me go to maybe controversial. I'm going to quote Paul Tillich now, or at least cite Paul Tillich. I use Tillich in my um, master's uh, thesis on religious language. And Tillich says that all genuine faith has an element of doubt in it. And I would say all genuine trust has an element of lament in it. Pure trust that never faces squarely the ragged edges of reality and addresses God with it, is probably a superficial faith in the end. What, what do we do with uh, biblical traditions like in Ecclesiastes where it says, you know, guard your steps when you go to the house of God, go near to listen, and then, then it goes on and says, do not be quick with your mouth, do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God's in heaven, you're on earth, let your words be few. There are some texts that, that talk about maybe a, a more silent reverence before God in the face of I don't, I don't know what that's in the face of, actually, but in, in the face of um, trouble or even uh, mystery. What, what do you think about that? I mean, my, my friend John Kessler has written a book about silence and, and speech in, in, in Scripture, which I think is very helpful. So it, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying one should never be silent. One should never be meditative. One should never be trusting. But a text like that in Ecclesiastes is advice that someone is giving from their life experience especially when you go into the presence of the, the ruler, whether it's, because he says similar things about being in the presence of a king, right? Or in the presence of God, you know, you know, comport yourself well and don't say anything out of whack because you might get in trouble. Well, that's one perspective. And I'm not saying that Ecclesiastes should be thrown out of the Bible, but Ecclesiastes, given one particular point of view, it's not always normative for every situation. It's particular advice that this, um, you know, sage is giving. So that's how I look at that. I mean, I love the book of Ecclesiastes, but it does not say the same thing as, say, Job or the Psalms. It says something a little different. Yeah, and, and the other idea um, while we're on lament that I've been sort of thinking about uh, for a while is, you know, the book of Habakkuk, because you know Habakkuk is structured using laments in the first couple chapters, first two chapters, and, and it ends with this affirmation Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, etc., I will be joyful, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. So there's a almost a defiance to this praise. And, and I, I wondered if you've given thought to like almost protest praise or defiant praise and, and how that 
kind of maybe is a complement to lament or how those two work together? So that's from the hymn at the end of Habakkuk. And I've preached on Habakkuk. And so I'm very aware that Habakkuk starts with a lament <laughs> and protests to God. And it seems to me that, they, that the, the prophet can come to this place of praise because he knows he's been heard by God. So I, I, I think you can't ignore one to, to get to the other. You shouldn't jump over the lament to get to the praise, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a good point. So, you know, he's had the dialogue back and forth with God. So you've got a, a brief discussion on the problem of evil in your book, which I is is a topic it seemed like you're well-versed in, but you, you, you dealt with just as much as he needed to in the book, because that's not the focus of, of this book. But I thought it'd be interesting if you just touch on why you find uh, the greater good arguments and the free will defense arguments inadequate for talking about the problem of evil. Right. Yeah, I only briefly touched on that. Um, you know, my master's degree was in philosophy. I, I did a history of philosophy major and a, and a thesis on religious language. And my transition publication between philosophy and biblical studies was an article called Why the Greater Good Isn't a Defense, Classical Theodicy in Light of the um, biblical genre of lament. So that was my, so I actually wrote on that. I'm not sure I, I would go with everything I wrote on that way back when, but it's, it was my transition. So I've thought a lot about it. Um, the greater good argument, okay, what it, what it says is for God to be good, we have to absolve God of any responsibility for evil. But of course, God is sovereign and, and seems to be, in some sense, responsible for the evil in the world, for at least allowing the evil in the world. So the way the argument goes is, any evil that God allows or causes is there because it contributes to a greater good that couldn't be accomplished without it. So without all the present evil in the world, we'd have a world that is less good than it presently is. And so that's how you absolve God. Now, in one version of the argument, the most common version, the greater good that God wants is human freedom, free will. So God gives us free will, even though it results in terrible evil and terrible suffering, because it's the greater good. Now, as I say in both this book, Abraham's Silence, and in my earlier article, I'm not really arguing for or against the argument. I'm just showing that this argument is in tension with the prayer of lament. The prayer of lament says, I take so seriously my perception of evil in the world. I take it as veridical. This is truth. There is really something wrong with the world. And I'm not going to say, it actually serves some greater good because that would lead me to, in my experience, to be to ethical paralysis. So if I see someone suffering, should I work to help them or should I say, well, it serves some greater good. So let them suffer. It doesn't really matter whether I help them or not because it's going to always turn out to them no matter what happens. So I think it's a spurious argument in, in that sense. It's, and it's not a helpful argument uh, in a pastoral way. It can cut the nerve of petitionary prayer. Mm, mm. Yeah, and along the lines of petitionary prayer, you talk about not only the lament psalms, but also Moses and Abraham as as um, lamenters and intercessors. So uh, could you just briefly touch on some of the ways that Abraham or Moses engages in lament? Because that'll help us transition to uh, eventually come back to Abraham later. Right, so the two major examples of lament are, in both cases, intercessory prayer. So if I say lament is supplication with an edge, intercession is supplication or lament on behalf of another. Right. So Abraham in chapter 18 intercedes with God 
over the fate of Sodom because God tells Abraham that he has heard the cry of Sodom and is going down to investigate. And Abraham assumes God is going to destroy the city. So he speaks up and tries to convince God not to destroy the city. And God accepts every single request he makes. Abraham just doesn't go far enough. And he says, will you save the city for the sake of 10? And God says, yes. But but it's actually Lot and his family who are eight or less, depending how you count it. So Abraham never goes that far to ask for their salvation. God nevertheless goes and saves them anyway out of the city before he destroys it. So the Abraham in chapter 18 of Genesis is a prime example of this very bold intercessory prayer. In fact, he's wondering, am I overstepping bounds? You know, he says, Lord, don't be angry with me. I'm just dust and ashes. But God actually shows no anger whatsoever with Abraham there. But he's wondering, am I going too far? Nevertheless, he boldly prays. That's Abraham in Genesis 18. Then Moses in Exodus 32 is coming down from Mount Sinai with with the Ten Commandments, and the second commandment is not to make an idol or an image and worship it. And the people of Israel are worshiping God through the golden calf. That's their attempt to, to control the presence of God. And God is going to destroy the people and start over again. With Moses, he says, "Let's. Let, you don't need Abraham's people. Let's start with you. And Moses intercedes and tells God he can't do it and gives all kinds of reasons, similar to the kind of reasons you find in Lament Psalms about why God should act or shouldn't do certain things. And God, we're told, quote, repents of the evil he was going to do, King James language. God changes his mind about the disaster he was going to bring. And this happens later on when the people enter, are about to enter Kadesh Barnea in, in, in Numbers 14. The spies come back and talk about the giants on the land. The people are afraid to enter. And God wants to destroy them again because they're unfaithful. And Moses says, remember how you showed power in mercy before? And God says, okay, I'll forgive them again. <laughs> Let's keep moving. And and then verse prophets, not all the prophets, but I cite about half a dozen prophets in the Old Testament in the book who intercede on behalf of the people or cry out with lament about the coming destruction. So there are examples in the Bible, and I think Moses and Abraham are the two primary ones. Interestingly, in chapter 20 of Genesis, when Abraham is having, uh, after Abraham has had this um, issue with the, the king of Gerar, God tells the king that Abraham will pray for him because he's a prophet. And I think he's a prophet because he interceded two chapters earlier. Or is it three chapters earlier? Yeah, and, and, and you point out that this also, like, so Abraham's lament in 18 is right off the back of God saying, I've chosen him to practice justice and righteousness. So To teach, to teach his family. Yeah, okay. My, my yeah. justice and righteousness to pass it on right. to the next generation. Yeah. Right. So it's like he needs training in that as well. And and so this this practice of, okay, I'm about to judge this people. Now how are you going to respond? Like do, so do you see that that intercession as part of the almost like training regimen? Yes. In- so I mean God could just say, Look, I'm a God of ju- justice and mercy. Um and or God could say I'm going to destroy these people. And you pray for them. Please don't destroy them. And God says, okay, I won't destroy them. That shows you existentially that God is a God of mercy as well as justice. So so it's a learning. And the same thing with Moses. I mean, um, God tells Moses, you know, I'm really angry with these people, but I'm not angry enough to destroy them yet. Leave me alone so I can get angry enough to destroy them. Hint, hint. In other words, I don't get... I don't have bursts of anger and zap people when I'm angry. You know, it takes time to build up. So there's an opening for Moses, and he learns from that. And that's why in Numbers 14, he says, remember the way you showed power in mercy back then? So Moses learned that, and it became the basis of his intercession. 
Now let's shift to Job because you talk about Job as another lamenter in the Bible, and you'll come back to connect Job to Abraham. Um, you, you talk uh, in your book about how the book of Job is best explained in terms of exploring the question of appropriate speech before God. And I was just wondering if, if you could explain what you mean by that. So a lot of people talk in the book of Job, right? Job talks, Job's friends talk, the, the Satan, the accuser talks, God talks, and then this fourth guy named Elihu talks. Um, they all say different things. Who's right? And Now let's put God into the picture for the time being, because we're asking about Who's right in talking about God? Whose theology is right? And, you know, is it appropriate that you curse God and die, which Job's wife says, which is what the, the Satan wants Job to do, to curse God? Or is it right to bless God? Because Job does that initially after his first round of suffering. After his second round of suffering, he doesn't bless God. He just fatalistically says, you know, we got to accept from God's hand whatever he gives, good or bad. Um, but he's, he doesn't bless God anymore. He's gone a little too far for that. The, he then starts to curse the day of his birth. Is that appropriate speech? The friends tell Job that he's speaking inappropriately and audaciously, and he should be more, they're like Ecclesiastes, you know, be a little more quiet before God and remember who he is, you know, you're a moth and he can burn you up and you're, you're an insignificant nobody. And then, but Job keeps pressing back against them and finally takes his speech directly to God. And the question is, who's speaking right? Is it appropriate to always say God is in the right and you are always wrong, so just shut up and submit, what the friends basically say? Or is it okay to say, Lord, things are terrible and you have caused this, and so please help me. I want, I want some help or I want you to answer, why am I going through this? So the question of appropriate speech is, it seemed to me in light of my reading of Lament Psalms that Job is doing basically lament. The friends are saying lament is inappropriate. And so I... And I learned this originally from Gustavo Gutierrez' commentary on Job from way back when, and I actually cited in that early article why the greater good isn't a lament. Um, but I've seen other people say that too. I'm not, he's not the only one who said that. Mm-hmm. So, um, so if we think of the book in terms of not trying to explain evil, or even as some have proposed, like explore the question of of the you know sort of reward punishment system in the cosmos, but as a, exploring appropriate speech, then how do God's speeches fit into that? How do you see the divine speeches fitting into the book? So God's speeches ultimately, ultimately justify Job. But there are two speeches. In the first speech, God takes Job on a tour of the cosmos and including weird animal life on earth. And that's, that was not my entry point into Job. I started with the second speech where he shows Job the monsters, Behemoth and Leviathan. What I've come to understand is that the first speech criticizes Job's understanding of how God is sovereign over the universe. And God is showing that he doesn't micromanage the cosmos. There's a lot of wildness in the world. He lets it be that way. And some of that is tragic sometimes. He doesn't. So Job is wrong to think that because he is righteous, he should always be blessed. The world doesn't work that way. And God does not make it so. That's what the first speech primarily shows. There's a wildness woven into the, the weave of the world, and, and you can't always predict the outcome, and there is suffering. That silences Job. Job is rendered totally mute after that, and God then challenges Job and says, anybody who challenges the Almighty has got to respond, and Job's response is to say, 
I spoke too too quickly. I said too much. He's like Ecclesiastes, I guess. He said, I put my hand over my mouth. I won't say anything more. And if God wanted to shut Job up, which is the traditional reading of the speeches, God had accomplished that purpose. But he doesn't want to shut Job up. So he says, okay, Job, let me speak some more. Here are two monsters, the primary characteristics of which is they have huge mouths and nobody can tame them. Hint, hint. I like wild creatures that talk a lot or that, that, um, that your friends try to tame you. They can't tame you. You're wild. So when I gave a talk on this years ago, uh, 2010, I think it was, um, back in Jamaica, my home country, uh, one of the president of one of the seminaries there said, you know what I've learned from this? Be like Leviathan. <laughs> Be bold in your speech and challenge what's wrong in the world because God wants that. So that's what he learned from the, the, the speeches there. So I think that the purpose of the speeches is first to correct Job's theology but then to affirm the fact that Job complained to God. That's not being critiqued. But but it doesn't mean our theology is always right when we um, lament to God, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's a really good point that, you know, to affirm lament is not to affirm all the content in a lament as theologically accurate. Because um, Job does need correction uh, from God, at least. His friends didn't offer the right correction. Um, but he needed more than that with, and I really like that point about the big mouths of Leviathan and the behemoth. And I got that from, I got that from Bill Brown, William, William Brown at, at Columbia. Yeah. That's great. And, and let's talk about 42.6 real quick, uh, Job 42.6, where Job says, and I'm reading here from the CEB translation that you cite, therefore I relent and find comfort on dust and ashes. And this is a very contested verse, as you discuss in the book. Um, you know, some people say, I repent on dust and ashes. So then you've got Job needing, you know, uh, admitting sin or something, um, which would seem to vindicate the friends. So how do you see that verse functioning here at the end? That is the most contested verse in the whole book, of course, right? <laughs> and there are so many different ways to translate it. Probably a dozen different ways you could translate it. And then, but let me say one more thing, but no matter how you translate it, and I will get to that in a sec, that still doesn't solve the meaning of the verse. <laughs> you have to then ask, what does that mean in the context of the entire book? So I think that um, it's, it's like I find comfort or I'm consoled concerning dust and ashes. That's how I actually render it. Because the, the, you know, the verb naham for, can, can mean repent or can mean to be consoled, depending on context and so on. But in the book of Job, it means almost always, if not every single time, comfort. And the next time it's used is when Job's friends and family come to comfort him at in, later in that same chapter. And it's, it's definitely comfort. So I think comfort makes the best sense here. And to say, I find comfort concerning dust and ashes. Dust and ashes is a phrase that, you know, as I, as I point out in the book, that Abraham used in his dialogue with God in Genesis 18. Now we can come to that. But it's also used in Job 30, where Job says, you know, you've thrown me into the dust and ashes. I'm like nothing now. I'm wasted. And so he's changed his view that, okay, dust and ashes is a symbol for, I think, fragility and suffering. And he's comforted about that. Even someone in this situation of suffering can have God, the creator of the universe, address him in a personal theophany, and that brings great comfort that he has been heard in his suffering. So it's a different perspective he now has on his suffering. This this word of comfort, in, which can also be translated restore, 
is is something uh, David Lambert discussed this one time in one of his articles where he he talks about how um, the the job of the the friends, which are called comforters from the root nacham, is is to like they have a sort of ritual function. So they they sit with him for seven days, and then their job is to help facilitate his return to society. You know, like putting on clothes and brushing off the dust and ashes. So I just find it interesting too that on the CEB translation, I find comfort on dust and ashes. It, it would be ironic to find comfort while still on dust and ashes. And I just wondered if you thought there's anything to that idea. Yes, I, I think I take the preposition al not to mean on, but concerning. So not spatially, but but it's a derivative meaning uh, concerning. It's like in you know in, in medieval um, works by Thomas Aquinas, you know, de trinitate, the day functions in the same way, concerning. Yeah. Okay, um, let's let's go to Abraham, and why should we connect Job and Abraham? Um, so your book's called Abraham's Silence. Why are we talking about Job? Uh, what's the relationship between the two? Yeah, when I started working on this, I, the idea I had was specifically to connect Job and Abraham, and I was going to actually put Abraham first and Job as a response to Abraham, and I changed my interpretation of the relationship between them. But there are many intertextual connections between Job and Abraham. Some are thematic, some are actual verbal connections, like the phrase dust and ashes only occurs on the lips of Abraham and Job in the Bible, nowhere else. I actually thought it was actually a common phrase and looked it up and you couldn't find any more. Those are the only places. And they're also both said to fear God. Technically, the, the, the vowel pointing of the Hebrew actually says they are God-fearers, a little bit spe more specific. And there are all kinds of other connections too that many other scholars have brought in. And I, I go through them toward the end of my sixth chapter to show the, the interconnections. But even if you didn't have all these interconnections, you'd have to ask the question, you know, Abraham is silent in the face of a terrible situation of which uh, stress and what would result in his own suffering. To kill your own son is going to result in your suffering for the rest of your life as you go through flashbacks and trauma and PTSD about that. It's a terrible situation. And then Job goes through terrible suffering. So there is a connection thematically between them. And I wanted to explore it. And I had initially thought that the writer of Genesis 22 was validating Abraham's silence. And Job was a book written to show that you could have a different way to fear God concerning dust and ashes, where you were vocal and protest. I now think, and I've come to think, by exegetical details that I've looked at, that even the writer of Genesis 22 is not affirming Job's silence, but is showing Job's silence and then making a comment about its inappropriateness at the end. But even the context of the Abraham story says more about the inappropriateness of that, yes. Right. So, um, so instead of two models of how to fear God, you've got a, a critique of Abraham operating in Genesis. So what are some of the clues in the story of Genesis that suggest we should be calling that silence into question? There are so many, and I won't go to the very minor ones that just show that things are troublesome. I'll go to the ones that really help me see this. The first is when God says, take your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac. Well, whom you love, most commentators interpret that to mean that God, God is saying, you love Isaac too much, and I want you to show I want you to detach from your commitment to Isaac because it's getting in the way of your commitment to me. However, 
there is absolutely no evidence in Genesis that Abraham loves Isaac. In fact, there's pretty clear that Abraham is attached to Ishmael and Sarah is attached to Isaac. So uh, when God tells Abraham in chapter 17 that he's going to have another son through Sarah and he's going to be the inheritor of the covenant, Abraham says, please don't forget about Ishmael. God says, no, I'll bless him too, but it's going to, the line will come through Isaac. And when Sarah sees Ishmael playing with Isaac, and of course the root of the verb for play is Isaac, <laughs> he was Isaacing with Isaac, she said, oh, shoot. Uh, he's taking over Isaac's role. And uh, this is my perception of what's going on in that story. And Abraham, you know, has priority for Ishmael. Maybe my son will never get the inheritance. He's still going to go to Ishmael. And so she wants to send Hagar and, and, and Ishmael away. And Abraham is very distressed about this, we're told. But when God says, take your son, whom you love, and I'll get to the whom you love in a second now, Isaac, and, and sacrifice him on a mountain, I show you, Abraham shows no distress. He just goes to do it. Now, I think he, he must have some internal distress, and I suggest there may be some something about that. But he does not protest, where he would protest, I think, if it was Ishmael. So therefore, I, t so I take whom you love not to be a statement of fact, but to be a rhetorical phrase that challenges Abraham to reflect on whether or not he does love Isaac. And his intercession for Isaac would actually begin to provide a bond between him and his son that maybe was absent before, but it, he doesn't do that. Yeah, and these familial dynamics are really important in your interpretation. Um, and you also note that it's very likely that Sarah was pregnant with Isaac when Abraham passes her off as his sister to the king of Gerar. So so he, he's, he's quite fine with letting this king take his wife when she's pregnant with Isaac. So at least at that point, there's very little attachment. Right. In, in chapter 18, God says that she's going to have a, they're going to have, have a birth of a child. It's coming soon, perhaps within the next year. And um, in chapter 20, he goes uh, and passes her off as his sister while she might well be pregnant, which, which just shows that he doesn't really care about the birth of that child. Mm. And, and, and then after the binding of Isaac, too, there are familial dynamics that you talk about. So what happens to Abraham's family after he nearly sacrifices Isaac? So Abraham had been living before the event in different places, but at one point he's living in Haran. When he returns down the mountain, so we're told that Abraham told the servants that the boy and I will go up the mountain and worship and return to you. And as they're going up, there's a conversation between Abraham and Isaac. And then he said, the two of them walk together. Well, after the event, we're told Abraham returned to his servants and uh, they went and lived in Beersheba. <laughs> so first of all, Isaac doesn't return with him. He's on a mission that even the rabbinic tradition is very clear on. So they speculate what happened to Isaac, and one speculation is he was taken to the Garden of Eden to heal of his wounds. Um, and he sh shows up next three years later when Abraham sends a servant, which we think might be Eliezer, right, to find a wife for Isaac. That's when he shows up next, and he's living in Beher Laharoi, which is somewhere else in the Negev, and Abraham is living in Beersheba. Hagar is living in Beersheba. Sarah is living in Haran, because when she dies next, Abraham travels to Haran to bury her. They're not living together. So it's a fractured family. And Isaac, Isaac and Abraham never see each other again. And Isaac becomes a diminished character. We, we, we're, we know this ritualized phrase, you know, the God of 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But, but there is an Abraham story in the book of Genesis. There is a Jacob story, and there's a Joseph story. There is no Isaac story. He gets at most one chapter, chapter 26, because he's a diminished character with no agency. He has been traumatized by this event. And you can see that in the story. Many other people have talked about that. He's a shadowy character, um, Liz, Liz Boas says. Um, so his son, Jacob, now, later on in the story, makes a covenant with Laban, his uncle, and swears the covenant in the name of the God of, I, God of his father, Abraham, his grandfather, basically, and in, the, in the, the name of the God of his father, Isaac. And the name of God for Isaac is the fear of Isaac. He swears it twice in the name of the fear of Isaac. So what Jacob learned about God is you run scared of this God because he tries to kill you. And so it's a fractured family and Isaac is diminished. And my question is, is that really what God expects? That commitment to Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, leads to the fracturing of your family? You know, intrinsically. And of course, sometimes you have to hate father and mother and put them aside to love God if that's getting in the way. But this is not getting in the way. This actually fractures the family. Yeah, fascinating. And, and uh, you know, Jonathan Sachs points out in his Not in God's Name, which I saw that you cited in, in the, the book, that um, you do get a little bit of a reunion, at, but it's at the, is it the burial of Abraham? Uh, yes, when I mentioned Isaac that. And Ish- yeah. yeah, you mentioned it too, that Isaac and Ishmael get back together. That's the next time they're reunited. Yeah, fascinating too to think about Abraham possibly going back to Hagar as opposed to living with Sarah after this whole event. So, okay, so so part of your argument then is that the, the text suggests at least that whatever happened in 22 and with the binding of Isaac, it actually tore apart the family or it further fractured an already fractured family. Um, what, what do you do then with, you know, at the end of the, after Abraham doesn't stick the knife in Isaac, the angel says a second time in, in the voice of the Lord, uh, let me just read from Genesis twenty two sixteen to 18. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me, or literally because you listened to my voice. So that's, you know, on a, on a quick read, uh, I think most people would hear that as, he listened to God's voice, namely to sacrifice his son. And because of that, the all the Abrahamic blessings will come to fruition. So how do you read this angelic declaration here? Right, right. So I'm going to separate two things in the declaration. I'm going to start with verse 16, because you have not withheld your son, your only one. And I'm going to separate it from the, from the, the ending, because you have listened to my voice. I think they're different. So in the first one, because you've not withheld your son, your only one, that's actually mentioned also earlier in the angel's first speech, that same phrase. And so, um, you know, going back a few years, I'm memorizing this passage in Hebrew as I'm walking through the woods. And I come to this verse and I'm, uh, you know, um, and I go to say, whom you love. Because that's what the earlier phrase when I said, ooh, that's missing. The angel didn't say that you love him because clearly you don't, but you didn't withhold him. That's just a fact. So that's the first thing that that struck struck me. The angel leaves out whom you love. All right. Um, The next thing is that 
because you've done this and not withheld your son, I'm going to do this for you. If you assume, and of course, it's really hard not to assume it because we have a history of 2,000 years of interpretation behind us that have told us one particular reading. If you assume that Abraham is being praised for this, for not withholding his son, for giving him up to God, then clearly it's a it's a blessing. You did this, I'm going to do this for you in response to affirm that you did what was right. But you could, re- if suppose you didn't have all that history of interpretation, and you're reading this for the first time, and you're reading it in light of the lament psalms that one ought to protest to God, that God is so merciful that God will listen to the prayers of his saints. Um, and you, you say, you know, because, uh, let me back up a second. Um, this is the second time that you have what looks like a conditional consequence. It looks like because you've done this, I'm going to bless you. So in other words, my blessing depends on you having done this. Now, this is not, it's not the first time that's mentioned. Back in chapter 18, before Abraham protests the destruction of Sodom, God says, I'm going to tell Abraham about Sodom because I want him to teach his children after him God's ways. I want him to re- teach all this so that I will bring blessing through all the nations, through his offspring. So there is a transition from the unconditional blessing in Genesis 12. It's going to bless you and and all the nations bless through you. I want to teach you what's right so you can teach your descendants. And that's going to be the channel of blessing that you're going to make known to people what kind of God this is. Now, with that background, it's very plausible though it goes against 2,000 years of interpretation to read this new text that you've just read to us, because you were not able to intercede for your son and learn of my mercy, because you went to just to kill him, the nations will not learn of blessing through you. I'm going to have to bless them directly. So despite what you did, I will bless you and your descendants. I will do it myself. So it's reverts. It reverts to the unconditional promise of chapter 12. And what made me think of that was in the Moses story, the, 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 the covenant seemed to have been conditional and they broke the covenant by worshiping the golden calf. And God then makes the covenant unconditional after that because they can't keep it. Could the same thing be happening here? Since Abraham cannot um, teach the nations about God's character because he hasn't learned it, I'm going to do it myself, and I will bring blessing directly to them, even despite your inability to live fully up to my standards. So that's the, that's the first part. But then the last part, through your offspring, all the nations will be blessed because you've obeyed me. I'm not the first to say this. There's a, uh, a late medieval Jewish scholar who actually said, yeah, Abraham's obeyed God, and that's why uh, and what, what he obeyed God there, what he listened to there, was not the command to sacrifice him. That was what the first part stated. But when God, the angel said, Abraham, Abraham, don't do anything to the boy. Don't even touch him. Abraham listened to that. Therefore, his offspring was saved. That's the only way all the nations can be blessed through his offspring. So, so you know, there, there are ways to read this that don't simply affirm Abraham, but it requires slowing down. And saying, all right, I know I've been so shaped by the tradition. Let me try and read it differently. And it's not going to feel right the first time or the second time or the 10th time. But after a while, you may say, man, this may actually be saying something different than what I thought. But you got to live with the text. 
for a long time. Yeah, and you've clearly done that. Um, I, I guess your interpretation in some ways of the first part there, uh, because you have done this, not withheld your son, I'll surely bless you. It does account for like the need to reiterate something here because if it's simply redundant of stuff you said earlier why why would there be sort of a new condition added to it because there's the condition was already laid out uh, back in 18 and so now you've got okay because so your interpretation is because you did this thing you actually went ahead with the sacrifice when you should have protested it i'm just gonna sort of do a direct blessing so what does that do to the earlier call to for the blessing to come through the teaching of justice and righteousness is that is that no longer operative or what happens to that that's like saying that in in the, in the case of the golden calf that the torah is no longer operative because israel sinned no it's still operative but but it cannot you the blessing cannot come simply by obedience and there's a whole lot within the old testament about god doing stuff despite israel's recalcitrance because of his mercy so you know if everything depended on our obedience, not much would really get accomplished. So although the standards have not changed, we should be teaching about God's ways to the next generation. Even if we don't, God is going to still work outside of our particular agency to bring about his purposes. Hmm. Has this reading of the silence of Abraham caused you to look at any other silences in the Bible. I was thinking in particular of Noah. Um, and, and of course, later Jewish tradition added some, <laughs> uh, not protest to Noah, but he becomes a preacher uh, where he's trying to convince his contemporaries. It, do you read other silences this way as well, or haven't you taken it there? I, I haven't taken it there. When you finish writing a book and you've dedicated you know, a couple of years to getting it complete, you put it aside for a while and go to other things that you have not been touched for a while. So I haven't thought through a lot of the other implications of this. I, I would say in the story, in the case of Noah, what's interesting about that is Noah is clearly a different kind of story. It's much more legendary. And it's, it's in the primeval history. It doesn't have the kind of detail of the narrative that we have with the, gen with the Abraham story. So it's a different kind of story, totally. And I'm not sure, I would say that, you know, you've got to read these stories for the point of the story. And in the case of the Noah story, I'm not sure it's focusing on the character of Noah as a primary thing. It's there. I think it's talking about what the reason for the flood is and the character of God in the flood. And that God does not arbitrarily destroy the world like in Mesopotamian flood myths because he couldn't sleep at night because they made too much noise. You know, God is reacting to the, to the violence that filled the earth to, to bring about a better place. And Noah becomes the beginning of that new, new human race, but even then he messes up right away and he's not particularly righteous. He's just righteous in comparison to the other people around him, you know? <laughs> the most righteous it's a relative one in the world. Yeah, yeah but, but he wasn't perfect by any means yeah yeah hey, you know another way i've read abraham's story is is not as a model of faith per se but as as something of a and this is going back to a traditional reading because that's how i've usually read it the sort of high calling on those that god calls to be in a position or place of prominence um so like you know you think of, of moses going down to egypt and it says you know god met him and tried to kill him and or Abraham, he, or sorry, uh, Jacob, he, he comes to him at night and just starts wrestling him. And, and, and I just wonder, like, obviously you, you hold to a particular reading here, but if there's anything to the, the idea still that 
that there's a, a demanding test for those that God calls to be in a place of prominence? I think that's probably true. Um, you know, uh, because I've loved you or chosen you, you're going to be the first to experience judgment. You know, you find that view in the prophets uh, about Israel's election. The elect one is always held to a high standard. But you don't need to go to an example like this, kill your son, to prove that that, that general principle that the elect one is always held to a high standard, I think, needs to, gets abstracted from the particulars of this story. So I was, you know, when I'm teaching the Old Testament and you're teaching the David story, for example, you know, one of the questions you can ask is, you know, to the women in the room, would you like to be one of David's wives? Um, probably not. No. <laughs> probably not. Uh, that's kind of thing, you know, what kind of a character is this? And I'm, I'm doing work on on Samuel right now. And, and would you like to be, you know, have Samuel as your your boss, basically? And I've had students say, no, would never like that. That's a guy who manipulates you, you know? So the question is, um, would, would you like to be around a man who is willing to kill his son to prove his obedience to God? I would find that highly problematic. And then to, to be more specific about the experience, what would it be like to be Abraham and to live forever after that with the memory and the flashbacks of killing your own son? You know, what, what? that would destroy a person. Does God really want that? So what we didn't touch on clearly was that the primary purpose of this test, in my opinion, is not whether Abraham fears God enough to kill his son. It's whether he discerns the character of God as one who doesn't require him to kill his son. And so it's a it's one of the just like with Moses at the burning at, at the golden calf, this test would cause Abraham to say, Lord, that's not something you would want to do, right? You're a God of mercy. And God said, Yep, you got it. You passed the test. So Abraham would take the risk of protest, taking the wager that God is a God of mercy. And he would learn that also through the test. That's what he would pass on to his descendants. And uh, once I preached on this um, some years ago in Canada, and um, uh, a pastor came to me after and said, I'm going to go home to my son and tell him, I will never kill you if a voice from heaven tells me to. Don't worry, I'll never do that. <laughs> that was what he got from this. <laughs> well, that's a good start. Um, yeah, because I, I think that's, you know, I mean, and, and part of the reason I brought up, like, is this a demand on people in power, like, and not for your average person. Because one of the potential pastoral concerns in this is, okay, even if he wasn't supposed to sacrifice his son, but it, should the people of God expect these kinds of tests that are, you know, from God, but yet so contrary to God's character as a way to, um, you know, for us to discern God's character? You know, like, you know what I mean? The, the, the test itself still is is very uh, troubling. Yes. So, so I, th I think it, it's, it's quite unique because it's about somebody at the beginning of the story of Israel, and he's going to pass on to the, his descendants who this God is that he's coming to know. I mean, contrary to a lot of Jewish midrash, you know, Abraham was not um, one who destroyed his father's factory of idols and resisted um, Nimrod back in Babylon. He was not a monotheist in Babylon. He was a polytheist. He, he has to learn about this new God, that he's not like the gods of the nations. What is distinctive about the God he's going to pass on? So it's at a, a nexus point in the history of Israel. And I would say all leaders are going to find testing, not like this. The test might simply be, you could be a situation of compromise. Would you compromise your faith and your morals because you are in power? 
Or will you be faithful and sacrifice and say, I will not do that because it's wrong. It's not a unique test, but it may be a special kind of thing that leaders are prone to because they, they often feel they have a lot of privilege and power. What kind of relationship with God does your book seek to foster? Fundamentally, I want people to understand that God is a God who embraces them with intimacy and love and compassion, no matter what they're going through. And they can take it to God, and God will hear them. And even if your pastor can't hear your complaints, God is not put off by anybody with a big mouth. I mean, he's not scared of Leviathan. Leviathan is his wonderful um, monster that he made. And, And if you feel that you're being monstrous in your approach to God, God is not worried about that. And I, I think that this kind of honesty with God bonds us in great intimacy. And it ultimately helps us to understand the depths of the suffering of Christ and the passion that the God of all creation took into himself, all the sin and suffering of the world because of love. And this is the God of love I want people to come to know. But a transcendent God who has no connection to our lives is not going to be helpful for our lives. It's also unbiblical. But as Osgenes wrote in The Dust of Death many, many years ago in the 1960s, no other God has wounds. Mm. Richard, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with OnScript today. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.